It's time for us to look at God's Word together, and so you'll find it really helpful if you could turn to Philippians chapter 4. In the Church Bibles, that's on page 1180. I I think we'll have the reading on the screen too. Yeah, that's great. So we're coming towards the end of this letter that we've been looking at uh, in term time uh, since the beginning of October. And to the last chapter, which I'm going to cover in my last two Sundays of Preaching Tears, your pastor. Therefore, my brothers and sisters, you whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, stand firm in the Lord in this way. Dear friends, I plead with Euodia, and I plead with Syntyche to be of the same mind in the Lord. Yes, and I ask you, my true companion, help these women, since they have contended at my side in the cause of the gospel along with Clement and the rest of my co-workers, whose names are in the book of life. Rejoice in the Lord always. I will say it again. Rejoice. Let your gentleness be evident to all. The Lord is near. Do not be anxious about anything, but in every situation, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your requests to God. And the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Finally, brothers and sisters, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. Whatever you have learned or received, or heard from me, or seen in me, put it into practice, and the God of peace will be with you. Speak to us in our life situations, through your eternal word, we pray, Lord Jesus. For your name's sake. Amen. The passage presents a few challenges. You could quite easily spend three or four weeks on it to start with because there's a lot of immensely rich, dense material. There's also some things that one's tempted to rearrange so that they cluster together to give them a kind of weight in preaching. 
And a number of different things are going on. And for the preacher, uh, there's always the challenge. How does this passage apply to the people in front of me and to the church as a whole and to individual lives? But actually, for me, this morning, that all resolved into something that was straightforward because it's a special moment. It's not my last sermon, but it is my second last sermon. And it just felt entirely natural in the time of preparation and prayer and thinking and reflection about it, simply to bring these words to bear in the light of the fact that in a couple of weeks' time I won't be your pastor anymore and to see the application of them to that change that's happening in my life and happening in the corporate life of the church. If you're a visitor, still more if you're a visitor and you're not a Christian, then you, you kind of get to, um, to listen in to an intimate family moment and to see a little bit of what it is to be the family of God and to be guided through the transitions that any family experiences by the word of God. And the overall message for us, if you wanted to sum it up in the most brief way, is just that the Lord has joy and peace for us in this transition. That God himself is inviting us to open ourselves to his peace and his joy in Christ at this moment and in this time. Verse 1, Paul addresses them in beautifully affectionate and God-centered terms. Therefore, my brothers and sisters, you whom I love and long for, my joy and my crown, stand firm in the Lord in this way, dear friends. And it was tempting for me simply to preach on this verse. Because you see, part of the joy that the Lord is in offering right now is a joy for me in you. And that's something that has become intensified and deepened even in recent days. It's an extraordinary phrase, isn't it? My joy and crown. And what he means by crown is that he is anticipating the end of all things and him standing before Christ and giving an account of his life and of Christ giving him a reward. I suspect the reward may be simply a great smile and some approving words. And arguing from the much greater to the much lesser, that is part of what my experience of entry into heaven will be like. 
But you who are my crown and my joy now will be part of my reward because of what God has done in your lives in the time I've been with you. That really is something for me to savour, and I take it it's a blessing for you also to hear. And I echo that pastoral affection. He speaks of the family of God. He speaks of them as brothers and sisters. That is who you are to me. Our church is not an institution. It's not a preaching station. It's not a kind of, um, I don't know, a building in the middle of a city. It's truly a community and a family. And as I'll be saying, I think at other times, one of the joys of the transition for us is that we won't cease to be part of that family. We'll just have a slightly different place in it. But there are words for us beyond verse 1 here, and it did seem to me right that we look at what Paul was saying to them and to apply it to ourselves. And we could sort of sum it up by some quite clear and pointed pastoral directions, which are not merely just kind of moral commands, but invitations to be and to do things in the presence and in the power of Christ. You could summarize it. Uh, We've got the kind of full version up there, which I I will be using. But you could kind of summarize it if you wanted to make it even more succinct. You are my joy and my crown. And in Christ, don't be awkward, don't be anxious, but be beautiful. Oh, and by the way, imitate me a bit. We'll come to that, don't worry. He says, stand firm in the Lord, because he's worried that they may be getting wobbly. And the wobbles are because of some internal issues and some external issues. The main focus here is on the internal issues. And finally, we get round to a situation that was clearly causing a problem in the church. Two women have fallen out. And he addresses them directly by name. I plead with you, Euodia. I plead with Syntyche to be of the same mind in the Lord. And these people who are not new Christians, they're people who've been active with him in the gospel. They've contended at my side in the cause of the gospel. They've been gospel warriors. They're the sort of people who are at Eden Cafe every single week and kind of uh, involved in all sorts of other things as well. Real, Real workers for the gospel. But they've fallen out. We don't know why, but it's serious enough for him to name them. This isn't naming and shaming. This is naming and claiming and saying you can do something better. And he says you need to be of the same mind. Now, we shouldn't assume that that means that they have to agree in every single detail. That's an impossible thing. None of us does with anybody. Notice that it is in the Lord. Be of the same mind in the Lord, in the presence of Christ and with with the truth of Christ. And in practice, what this means is a different way to working through conflict than the way typically that we may otherwise undertake. It's in Christ's presence. It's given the truth of Christ. 
in his book on Philippians. John Carson very helpfully suggests a little bit of what this looks like in, in practice. He says it's not a hopeless demand for perfect agreement on every subject. He's not saying, ladies, on every point of doctrine and life, I expect you to thrash out your differences and arrive at perfect agreement. It's very clearly not that. But he goes on to speak of the way Christians can disagree in which they focus on the things they disagree with rather than on the things they have in common. In every case, whether you can reach agreement on this detail or that, identify what takes absolute priority and begin with that. Focus on what you have in common. Make sure you agree about the gospel. Work hard to develop agreement on the matters of greatest importance, the gospel, the word of God, the glory of Christ, the good of God's own people, the beauty of holiness, the ugliness of sin, especially your own. Resolve to pursue like-mindedness with other believers. Notice that they needed help. He asks for the person he calls his true companion to help, and sometimes in a disagreement you need help. I've had situations where I've needed someone to be a third party in the room. This can happen too. But there is this call that he sends to a family of believers who he loves deeply and sees as having so much good in them to be committed to working through conflict in the presence of Christ. Just imagine how this must have been for them. I mean, their names are now there forever. Suppose in 10 years' time, you know, and Euodia's house group leader says, oh, what are we going to do this term for our Bible studies? Why don't we do Paul's letter to the Philippians? And Euodia says, no, 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 let's do Colossians. Sometimes when a senior pastor leaves, or anyone in any organization who's had a certain prominence and, like it or not, a certain, a certain authority and power is taken away, it's a wonderful chance positively for people to step up and do some fresh things and even try some fresh things. And I hope those will be happening. Just sometimes some people feel a kind of... Something is taken away that enables them, or almost sort of authorizes them, to start behaving in a bolshy and awkward way. The 1st of February is not the time for that. Dear friends, looking ahead to, to verse 5, what does he say? Let your gentleness be evident to all. And certainly that word... Gentleness is important. Another translation is uh, reasonableness. And I'm sure that the associations of the English word gentle work, but in, this, in this, this context, this is about a constructive approach to church life rather than an unconstructive approach. This is about a cooperative approach to church life, and in particular... It's an attitude to leaders that I want to press on you, which is constructive and cooperative. There is a certain way of being a member or part of a Baptist church in particular in which you kind of anoint yourself as the official opposition. If you read back minutes of Baptist church meetings, often it's almost as though people felt it was right to be as awkward and bolshy as possible. 
That's entirely wrong. And so I urge you, particularly in the time before a new senior pastor arrives, when there are massive decisions being taken, come at it with a constructive, cooperative spirit, even when there may be things that need to be talked through. Work through that conflict, because it is in the presence of Christ. Let your gentleness be evident to all. The Lord is near. Well, I said that joy was never far away in this letter and in this passage. And in verse 4, he says, Rejoice in the Lord always. I will say it again, rejoice. And through Philippians, we felt this continual call, whatever has been happening, woven into the seams of the book, have been a call to rejoice in the Lord. Yes, there may be some disunity in the church. Yes, there may be some opposition outside of the church. Yes, there may be some difficulties in personal situations. But hear this. You have something in Christ to rejoice in. His goodness to you in the gospel, the promises that he has given, the providences in your life, many of which uh, can easily be forgotten as we focus on other things. This point in our church life, we need to hear this great invitation to rejoice in the Lord. And what happens to many of us is that we hear that and perhaps for a moment as someone leads us in prayer or there's a moment of um, encouraging silence of the shared fellowship of prayer or or we sing a, a song and that lifts us and that's great. And then something starts kicking in again. And that's what he addresses in verse 6 and 7. He talks about working through conflict and he now talks about praying through anxiety. It seems to me so, so human to have quite close together the call to rejoice and then the addressing of anxiety because that is where so many of us are, oscillating between those things. And with a kind of um, magnetic pull for many of us, back into what we regard as normal life, which is an anxious life, in which we have to think about things and worry about them in the kind of hope that by doing so, they won't happen. And he says, pray through your anxiety into the peace of Christ. Do not be anxious about anything. I think it's so important to hear those words as a warm, pastoral, gentle invitation the very worst thing you can do, I think, as a, as a preacher or just any, anyone uh, sharing with another Christian is to uh, make them into the kind of command that just makes someone more anxious. Well, I was feeling anxious already, and now I've been told I shouldn't be anxious, so I'm twice as anxious because I'm anxious about being anxious. It's gentle. It's invitational. It's there to draw us and to pull us into a better way. Do not be anxious about anything, but in every situation, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your requests to God. Someone who lives a fairly 
healthy and secure and safe and pleasant life, wrote this. Anxiety is relevant, is relative, but for each of us, it's real nonetheless. On a beautiful afternoon in British Columbia, with every reason in the world to trust God and to be hopeful about the future, anxieties pound incessantly on the door of my house. We'll circle the building in the middle of the night. He's speaking figuratively, niggling, hissing, scratching against the windows of my mind. I'm tempted to open the door to these pests, and in our often dark and complex world, that temptation seems relentless at times. Given their constant call for attention, our anxieties must be addressed, for they can distract and disable and even kill. Someone said, I've had to cope with a lot of trouble in my life. And most of it's never happened. Another anonymous writer, it's not the demands of today that crush us so much as the regrets of yesterday and the fear of tomorrow. Charles Spurgeon, our anxiety doesn't empty tomorrow of its sorrows. Being anxious does, simply does not empty tomorrow of its sorrows. But it can empty today of its strengths and joys. Yet another writer. Too often we are exhausted by unreality. Do you know, during the first Gulf War, this is 91, I think, Iraq started launching Scud missiles into Israel. They said they were going to do so, and they started to do so. And a number of citizens died. Many of the deaths were not because of the missiles. Israeli scientists who studied the data after the war found that most of the extra deaths came from heart attacks brought on by extreme stress and anxiety about the missiles. They weren't hit by missiles, they were hit by fear. And they died. And once the the missiles started falling and actually most of them missed their target. I mean, there were some Israeli citizens who were killed by them. But people's stress levels generally fell and the extra death stopped. It's an extreme example, but my friend, are you living life like that? I have to say that I think Cambridge is a very anxious place. And I don't mean this critically, but I do mean it pastorally. I think Eden's quite an anxious church. I think there's quite a lot of us who are closer to the Israeli citizens dying of heart attacks from fear of Scud missiles. Dare I say it, than other churches in Cambridge and other churches in other parts of the country. That's not at all to be critical of anyone. But I think it is, is true. And people who've joined the church have said the same thing 
to me. And that anxiety shows itself in a whole range of different ways. And I do believe the Lord wants to say to you that he understands and that he is tender and gentle and not critical of this. But he does want to say to you, why not work on this a bit more? Why not do what I say in uh, Philippians chapter 4 and verse 6? In everything, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your requests to God. There is an alternative. There there are lots of um, helpful, if you like, secular common grace ways of dealing with anxiety. And many of them can work. But this is a particularly powerful one because it's centered on Christ. Do you know you can bring every single thing to him in prayer? Regular prayer and then reactive emergency prayer. And I think Paul is inviting us here to do precisely that. With thanksgiving, because there's always something to give thanks for. And then to entrust it to him. And leave it with him. Isn't it an amazing promise in verse 7? And the peace of God which transcends all understanding will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. It's quite kind of a bit weird to think of peace being something that guards, which is a kind of military metaphor. But, but actually, we, peace does that. And the country is peaceful. Our hearts are guarded against against fear of war. Society is peaceful. We're guarded against fears of crime. And this is speaking of the peace of God, which is a psychological state and a human emotion. In emotional terms, it's not desperately different from any other kind of peace. It's just that it comes from God and is a glorious thing. I've puzzled most of my Christian life as to the implications of the phrase which transcends all understanding. I kind of wondered about that over the years. And I read an explanation of that this week that I I think may be right, and it certainly makes sense. And it may be that what that means is, the word can be transcends or surpasses or is greater than. But the point is this. Bring your anxieties and your fears to God in prayer Leave them at Christ's feet and receive his peace, which is far better in dealing with anxiety than your own thinking. Understanding here being the attempt by human beings to get insight into their situation and thereby to do something to be able to to solve it. It's not a complete end to all human problem solving. We we need those techniques. But so much anxiety is based on unhealthy, obsessive ruminations on what might happen and how we might possibly prevent it from happening. And what he says is, if, if that's understanding, the peace of God is so much better. It's the lying in bed, awake at night, 
worrying about things that may very well never happen and deciding instead to move towards God in prayer, to leave them at his feet, to receive his peace, and gently to let those ruminating thoughts go. And to find practical strategies and tactics for letting them go and moving on to something else. And you really can do this. My own experience of anxious insomnia has very much been that the law can teach you to do this. This is something that practically can change and make a difference. And I do wake up in the night now, but I'm far less often anxious about things because the Lord has built this sort of pattern for me. And it seems to me that this is something for us in a time of change in which many of us may be getting more anxious. And there may be all sorts of things outside church life that are making you anxious. And the Lord says to you, come on, being my child is a bit more than this. Being my child could actually be a bit more relaxed and unclenched and peaceful and even happy. How is he speaking to you? He says, pray through your anxiety into the peace of Christ. And you say, well, what what should I think about then? And he answers that in verse 8. Finally, brothers and sisters, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. There's the alternative. And he gives this long list. I can't go through all the meanings of the words, but the translation's very good, and you pick it up perfectly well from the English. It is a focus on truth and goodness in creation, in human society, in human behavior. It's inclusive of all the good things that we see in the church and outside it as well. I've described it as beauty because I think beauty is a a very powerful category and, of course, the natural world, full of beauty. Human creative life, full of beauty. We're going to hear more about that this evening. Come along if you want to explore that a bit more with with someone who's a real expert on it. Human behaviour, much of it, very good. There's this pull and this draw that he's saying to focus on the good things. Bring them to mind. Rejoice in them above all, of course. The most beautiful and glorious thing of all is the Lord Jesus Christ. This is part of the way we turn away from this anxious state that so so often otherwise can, can harm us. And what it does is to turn us into the sorts of people who are seeing Christ's beauty in creation, human society, in the church, in all sorts of ways. And there is a kind of reflected glow that others see. We're thinking about outreach today. And as someone has put it, when we're filling our lives with beauty in the presence of Christ, it's as though we're looking ahead at a light that is coming. And there are all sorts of other people who have their backs to the light. But that means they're facing us. And they see that light and that beauty reflected in our faces. Work through your conflict. Pray through your anxiety. Fill your lives with beauty. 
And then there's one of these verses. It was very tempting just to slice this off and pretend it wasn't there, but it didn't seem quite right. Whatever you've learnt or received or heard from me or seen in me, put it into practice. When I decided I couldn't leave it out, I then started thinking how awkward that was going to seem and what a strange thing it would be to say, for me to be saying it, right, if someone else said it about me. But then I thought of something. This is not a one-way thing. This is a two-way thing. Because I've seen and been taught so many good things in Eden people, and I've put them into practice, and I've imitated them. And I suddenly thought, yes, that's been part of the privilege of being part of this family of believers for all these years, that I've learned so much, and I've actually imitated other people in things. I think of the sacrifice of some of our mission partners, which had a direct effect on my own willingness to move off into cross-cultural mission. In some way, almost direct kind of imitation of the uh, uh, sense of the call of the gospel. And so I just invite you to think about what you might have learned from me. Obviously, there's going to be lots of things that I've done that you don't particularly want to imitate, but what is it that perhaps you might take forward? How do we draw this together? Well, in some ways, it's summed up by verse 1 and verse 4. If you could have those up, Stefan. That call to rejoice in the Lord always, to set a tone of rejoicing. He wants to say it again, rejoice. Those words, my brothers and sisters, whom I love and long for, my joy and my crown, stand firm in the Lord in this way, dear friends. Someone has said that most of us have a kind of inner life that's like someone with a house that has a cellar that's pretty dark and a loft conversion that's full of light. And within the constraints of our own particular backgrounds and personalities, actually we do get a measure of choice as to whether we live in the cellar or in the loft. And the Lord says, come and join me in the loft. Rejoice in the Lord. To apply that specifically to this moment of parting, which I'm slightly anticipating, but it's part of a phase that we're going through. I listened to a a talk on this passage by someone who'd been pastor of a church for much longer than me. In the end, I think he did 46 years, so... That would give me some way to go. I can't quite imagine that, and you probably can't either. But when he was past my age, mid-60s, the church had been meeting for ages, maybe 20 years, in a big school. And the school was big enough for what had become quite a big congregation, and it was working well. And then they were told at fairly short notice they'd have to quit. And they embarked on a multi-million pound building project. Now the church is a bit bigger than Eden, perhaps a third bigger, not especially richer. So if you can imagine, for us, at short notice, engaging in a multi-million pound building project. Imagine church meetings. I can't remember if it was three and a half million. I think it might have been five million that they had to raise 
either through giving or loans or a mortgage. And someone asked him, right in the middle of this, do you ever lie awake at night worrying about this multi-million pound building project? Do you ever find you're losing sleep over it? And he replied, I've never lost even 30 minutes of sleep. Not because I don't worry, and he could be a worrying person in his own right, as he admitted. In fact, he said, I could write a book on worry, at my own worries. He said, no, not because I don't worry, but because we had no choice. We had to leave the school. No other school was big enough. All the church buildings had their own churches in them. God pressed us into this move. We simply had to pray and look for land. And it was God's responsibility to accommodate the six or seven hundred people. And I knew he would do so. He hadn't spent 40 years growing a church to disperse it. He hadn't grown mission at home and abroad for it all to come to an end. All the circumstances of providence and grace were there. And I could be at peace. I'm at peace about the future of Eden for very similar reasons. We were pressed into this. There's a sense in which Debbie and I are not volunteers, we've been press ganged, we were commanded. You didn't choose this. You just responded to our rather surprising call. None of us chose this. Maybe we wouldn't have. That doesn't really matter. It's the Lord's doing. It's the Lord's pressing. He's not doing this now in our lives and in your life. So that then the congregation can be destroyed by disunity or be unable to find a new senior pastor or dwindle away. He's invested in you. You are the sort of church that a pastor can say of, you're my crown and my joy. He's doing so many good things. And as Peter said to Cornstone Church in Nottingham, All the circumstances of providence and grace were there. And I could be at peace. And for me, all the circumstances of providence and grace are here. And I can be at peace. I invite you to join me in that peace and that joy. Let's take a moment of quiet and then I'll pray. We thank you, Lord, for your promise that as we put these things into practice, you, the God of peace, will be with us. Grant us, O Lord, to move from the cellar to the loft. Grant us, O Lord, to open the door to join peace in believing. In Christ's name, amen.